Open your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis 35. Our passage today is going to take us farther in our discussion of Genesis. And I want to read for us today from chapter 35, just the first couple of paragraphs. This is the holy and inspired and inerrant Word of God. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram and blessed him. <clears throat> and God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, as we turn to this, this chapter in this great book of Genesis, a chapter of transitions, a chapter of generations, one changing to another. 
we recognize that all too often we are in transition. And certainly when it comes to generations changing from one to the next, we recognize that there have been transitions between generations that have been strong and encouraging. There have been transitions between generations where uh, that has been less the case. And here as we look at the older generation passing away and the sons of Jacob coming into their own and, and Jacob moving into uh, the role of patriarch and not really the active one anymore, we see that there has been a lot of the message of the gospel lost between one generation and the next, that we see a man here who has been passive in the raising of his sons, who has not been active in training his children about the God who has saved him, who has rescued him, who has been to him again and again gracious, helped him in times of distress, and he has not taught his children to trust that same God. And so, Father, as we come to this chapter today, we pray that you would help us to examine what is here. We pray that you would work in our hearts by your Spirit, that we would think about what it is we have received and what it is we are passing on to the next generation. Beyond that, we pray that you would help us to see in this chapter what it is you are saying to the people of God throughout all time. And so, we ask for your help this morning. We ask that you would work by your Spirit in our hearts, that the name of Christ would be lifted up, and that you would be honored. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This chapter is a, an odd transition chapter. And at first blush, as you're reading through this chapter, hopefully you read through it this week in preparation for today, you can see that there are many different elements at play. There are lots of different uh, uh, plot threads, as it were, that are being uh, tied up or transition being made, and, and uh, different things are happening in this chapter right here. And so uh, it takes a lot of work, really, to see what is the unity of the chapter, what the Lord is communicating to us. And so today, we're going to uh, do our best to um, see what it is the Lord has for His people from this chapter. And I think as we work through it more and more, and seeing the, the number of people who die and who the people are who die, uh, seeing the people who come to the fore and begin to take leadership responsibility, uh, seeing what goes on in this chapter, I think what's happening here is that this is a, a chapter that is picturing for us the transition from the previous generation to a new generation. And of course, as you've read Genesis on your own, you recognize that in Genesis chapter 37, we have a, uh, the beginning of the Joseph narrative. And really, the Joseph narrative, with the exception of chapter 38, which is its own thing, but from 37 to the end of Genesis is the Joseph narrative. Joseph is the next generation. So we're about to launch into the conclusion of the book that is uh, 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 an extended tale about this one character primarily, Joseph and his actions. And so um, we are transitioning out of what has been a number of chapters about Jacob himself and all of his exploits and his time in Petanaram and his, uh, his marriages, his, his 
uh, all of his wives and his children and all that's gone on, the struggles that he's gone through and, and the journey that he's gone through is now coming to a close and we're going to transition on to a new chapter. And so I think that's part of the reason why this chapter is difficult uh, to piece together because there are lots of different things going on. And so um, as we look through it, I hope uh, we can see how this chapter is unified together. Uh, but as we think about this idea of transitions between generations, I look around the room here and we have, uh, we have four-year-olds and five-year-olds in the room. And we have people who are somewhat older than four and five years old, maybe pushing closer to a hundred than four or five years old in the room here. We've got a lot of generations represented. We've got uh, children, we've got parents and grandparents and great-grandparents represented in this room. And, and so we, uh, it, it's good for us to think about how to transition, how to move and pass on to the next generation who in a few years will be uh, coming to leadership what it is we ought to pass on to them. And so the question that arises for us as the old generation is passing away, as is happening here in Genesis chapter 35, and a new one is coming on the scene, is what needs to happen in order for the new generation to be prepared to walk before God? What needs to happen? What needs to be passed on? And so we'll uh, work through our chapter here, and then I'm going to make some uh, some comments when we get uh, to the end. But the first thing that needs to happen is that every generation needs to be purified. Every generation needs to be purified. As we look at our passage here and we, uh, and, and we begin to read, uh, right off the bat we see that God said to Jacob, arise and go to Bethel. Well, why would Jacob need to go to Bethel? I mean, God commands him to here, and that's really uh, all that, that, uh, that we need to know. But as we think back on what has gone on in the Jacob narrative, we remember that he has been to Bethel before. And uh, when he was there and he uh, saw that great vision of the ladder stretching between heaven and earth and, and God made promises to him and in light of those promises that God had made to Jacob, what did Jacob say in return to God? He made a vow. He said, I will come back to this place and I will worship here. God, if you will take care of me, if you will bring me back from the journey I'm going on, providing for all of my needs and bring me back here, I will worship you here and this shall be the house of God, says Jacob at this place called Bethel. And so we read about that back in uh, chapter 28, if you remembered the Jacob story, it's been a long time, but he, uh, remember he tricked his brother. Um, and, and lied to his dad and, um, at the urging of his mother, uh, which is its own thing. But he lied to his dad, tricked his brother, and stole the blessing. Remember? And his brother swore he was going to kill him. The next time I see him, I'm going to take him out, basically, were Esau's words. And so Jacob is on the run. And he's fleeing, and as he's fleeing and he's on his own, his mom has told him, and his dad now has told him to go into the far country, into uh, Paddan Aram, and find a wife there. So as he's leaving the country, he's running scared, he's on his own, he's got nothing but his walking stick, basically. That's when he has this vision. And in this vision, God encourages him that he's going to deliver Jacob. And Jacob says, well, if you do that, I will come back to this place, and I will worship. Well, has Jacob come back from Paddan Aram? Yeah, he came back long ago. He came back into the land, and when he came back in, remember he detoured and went to Shechem. And we remember all that happened in Shechem. 
He's living there outside of Shechem, and uh, all that uh, goes on in Shechem happens there. But the point is, uh, for this right here, is Jacob is being reminded by God, you haven't gone to Bethel yet. Yes, you're back in Canaan, but you've not done what you said you would do. You've not fulfilled your vow. And so the Lord says to him, arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there. And make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau, just in case Jacob needs the reminder of why Bethel is important. The Lord reminds him, it's because I appeared to you there. And remember, you said some words. Remember, you made a commitment. And so he's called to go there. He's uh, got to keep his vow that he's made there. And so we see in, in uh, verses 2 through 4 that Jacob says to his household and to all who are with him to put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Now, why would Jacob's people have foreign gods among themselves? Well, it's because they just murdered all the men in Shechem and plundered the place, taking all of the possessions of the land for their own. And that being a pagan nation, a pagan city with their pagan gods made out of gold and silver and valuable things would have been prime uh, targets for them to plunder. So they looted all of these gods and now they've got these foreign gods in their midst that's part of their wealth along with the other stuff that they stole. And he says, you've got to put that away. We can't take that. We're not going to take that with us. You need to put away these foreign gods. You need to purify yourselves because we have just committed murder on a mass scale in Shechem. We're an unclean people. So clean yourself and even change your clothes, your garments. There needs to be a change. Right? And so uh, that's exactly what happens. The people go and do that. They gave to Jacob, verse 4, all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So he takes them and he buries them under a tree. Um, like buried treasure almost, but he gets rid of it. He leaves it behind. He doesn't take it with him. He's uh, obeying the Lord and moving that way. And so uh, that's what's happened. The people are to cleanse themselves. And uh, in verses 5 through 7, we see that uh, they journey on. They're moving towards Bethel. They're going in obedience to God. God said, go to Bethel. And so uh, they are going to Bethel, and they've done what they should. And as they go... Remember what Jacob's fear was when his sons killed the city of Shechem, or at least all of the men. Do you remember the complaint of Jacob's? He didn't say, oh, that was wrong. You shouldn't have done that. We don't murder people. Remember, sons, we don't murder people. That wasn't his complaint. What was his complaint? Now everyone's going to be after me. Everywhere we go, we're going to be a stench in people's sight because we have murdered all these people. Well, as they travel, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Yes, indeed, the sons of Jacob had committed these atrocities and they were guilty and the surrounding regions had a right to hate them and to chase them down and to put them to death for what they had done, but God protected them. So we see God being faithful even when they have not been faithful. And so Jacob, in verse 6, came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is the land of Canaan. He and the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. This is the house, this is 
This is God, uh, the house of God is what he is calling this place. And so he leaves and, and, and goes to this land, arrives there, and names it El Bethel. And look at verse 8. We've not heard Deborah's name before. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, so his mother's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he named the place Alon Bakuth. We've not heard of Deborah before. We've not even really heard of uh, the nurse of his mother, except back in the day when he first, uh, when she was first leaving the land, when he, um, before he had even been conceived, remember when Rebecca was leaving the land of Haran, she left with her nurse. And so this is the nurse, uh, Deborah, we didn't know her name before, but now she has died. Why don't you think we read about Rebecca's death? We think Rebecca died around this time or she's already dead by now. Why don't you think we hear about her death? I don't really know. But scholars have long pondered and the rabbis think that it's because of her actions in convincing uh, Jacob to deceive his father and steal from his brother that she had, she had gone into um, shame, basically, that, that the, the text doesn't even bother to mention her death because of the actions that she took. Well, I, I don't know about that, uh, but we do learn about Deborah's death. Deborah, who was Rebecca's nurse, you see the passing of the previous generation, right? Every generation needs to come to grips with the fact that a change needs to happen before they can come into God's presence. They need to be made pure before they can have access to God to walk with Him. And I think that's a, that's a unique thing for children who grow up in Christian homes because you grow up uh, coming to church. And so that's a normal thing in your life, and that's a good thing. I, we bring our children to church, and Christians ought to do that. But they grow up thinking perhaps that they're okay. And maybe we as Christian parents can sometimes let our children grow up thinking they're okay. That they're, they're okay with the Lord because they know how to pray. They've been taught to, to pray before bed and they read their Bible and they've got some verses memorized and they can tell you things that are true and so they're probably okay. We need to think about in the tra- change of generations, the transition from one generation to another, that we need to help our children understand their own need to be purified, their own need for faith and repentance. We need to disciple our children. We need to help our children understand this fact so that they don't grow up thinking, well, of course I'm okay. I mean, after all, I grew up going to church. I went to VBS, and I got my first Bible when I was four, and I I did all of these things, and so surely I'm okay. We need to help our kids understand that they themselves need to be purified, that in order for this meeting with God to happen, they need to do... purify themselves and put away those things. They need to recognize we can't just go into meeting with God with our sin on us, with our gods in tow, with this record of having murdered all of these people. We can't just go meet with God that way. And so the new generation is having to be told, you have sin that needs to be dealt with. You have these transgressions that are very real and very concerning. So the first thing is that every generation needs to be purified. The second thing that needs to happen is every generation needs to be taught the promises of God. They need to be taught the promises of God. Look at verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram and blessed him. And God said to him, 
your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Now, if, if, you, if you are keeping up with what we've been talking about and you've been uh, uh, following along, you recognize that Jacob's name has already been changed to Israel. Remember, on the night before Jacob was going to meet with his brother, and he was, he was separating all of his stuff and his camps, and he was trying to strategize of how best to go about this thing, and, he's, and, and, and a member, a man, came and wrestled with him, wrestled with him all night long, and we discovered that that man is God himself who wrestles with him, and at the end of that time, God says to him, he asks him his name, and Jacob for once tells the truth, my name is Jacob, but he says to him, your name shall be called Israel. Because you have striven with God and with men and have overcome. Well, here we are chapters later in the narrative when we find that Jacob needs a reminder that his name has been changed. His name is Israel. His name is not really uh, Jacob anymore. And so God reminds him of that name name change, calls him Israel instead. Look at verse 11. We need to look at verse 10. God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, having blessed him, having changed his name, God says to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. And then he repeats a promise to him. This becomes familiar to us. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Right? So God is encouraging him. He's telling him things that he's already heard before. He's heard these promises before. If you flip back to chapter 28, at the end of Jacob's dream, in, in Jacob's dream, we see in verse 13, Behold, the Lord stood above it, the ladder, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. So there's the land promise. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And so here we are in chapter 35, and it's all this time later, and we have a repetition. It's years and years later, a repetition of the same promises. You've got the promise that a nation will come forth from Jacob. And not only a nation, but he says in, verse, in chapter 35, he says it's a company of nations. These 12 sons that he has will become a multitude of people. And in verse 12, he says that this nation is going to have a place to live. They're going to have a land that's going to be their own. So God promises the land that he gave to Abraham and gave to Isaac that's going to be the, the home of this nation that he's going to be. See, these, these things have been promised previously, but there's a new element that's been promised, something new and something different here, and that's what we see 
In verse 11, the second half of it there, when he says, Kings shall come from your own body. A royal line shall be born to you. Not just a bunch of people, not just a nation, and not just a land to dwell in, but Jacob, there will be a king who comes from you. There will be a royal line who comes from you. Now, you and I have read this, and we've been reading in Genesis, and so we've already heard talk about kings. We know that Abraham, back in chapter 17, was promised that kings would come from him, and and that there was a promise that Sarah would bear kings, and so we've heard that, but that's been generations. This is the first time that he hears this, that there will be a king. There will be kings, a royal line that comes from him. And so we see in verses 13 through 15 that he responds to that promise with worship. God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Jacob needed to be reminded of the promises of God. And more to the point, the last time Jacob heard these promises, what did he have with him? His walking stick. He didn't have these 12 sons. He didn't have this next generation. He didn't have this multitude, this horde of people following him. And decades have passed. Remember, he's been in Padanaram, and now he's back, and he's got this whole multitude, and God repeats these promises to him. God is reminding him. God is teaching him, and God is, through him, teaching the next generation. I'm glad God is not above repeating himself. How often do you need God's repetition? How often do you need to go to the Word? And see what is written there, and you think, ah, I've, I've heard this before, I've read this before. Uh, you read through your Bible, hopefully, uh, you know, regularly that you're reading through it. I've, I've been on a plan this year just to read through it just once this year, and so I've been kind of jumping around to different books, not really reading in a particular order. And I come to a new chapter, and I think, well, I've read this before. I just finished Job yesterday. And uh, the last few chapters of Job, and I I just love that, and I I come to it ready to to rejoice and celebrate what God says about Himself, that he's, He's wiser than Job, that Job, you don't even know what you're talking about. How can you understand how these spiritual things ought to happen when you don't even understand where this animal gives birth and and, and who laid the the stars and, and and the foundations of the earth and where does rain come from, Job? You don't know, but I know, says God. So I'm reading through that, and I'm thinking, I know what I'm reading. I've read this before. I've read it, uh, you know, a number of times. But I read it, and through the repetition, I'm reminded, oh, God really is wiser than I am. And when I look at a circumstance, and I think, well, this is the best thing that should happen. It shouldn't, it shouldn't happen like that. It should, this would be better. God, it would be better if you did this thing. And then I turn to the final chapters of Job and I'm reminded again that my intellect is about this big. My perspective is about that big. And my selfishness is much greater. We need to be reminded. And each new generation needs to be reminded, needs to be taught the gospel. Needs to hear, needs to understand the gospel, what it is to know Christ, what it is to have peace with God in Christ. 
And all too often, parents, we, we assume this. We assume that because our children are growing up in church, perhaps, that they're being taught, that they're, that they're learning this, that they're picking these things up. But each new generation needs to be focused on, needs to be taught, and needs to have that the same saving message of the gospel, the message of reconciliation that we were talking about in Sunday school uh, this morning needs to be passed on to the next generation. Let's don't assume that this next generation needs to be taught as well. And thirdly, the third thing that needs to happen is that every generation needs to be forgiven. Verse 16, then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up, set up a pillar over her tomb. It is called, it is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, and in, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. First of all, Rachel, his beloved wife, remember the first one he saw, the one he wanted, the one he fell for, the one he was willing to make a deal with her father to work seven years so that he could marry her. He was willing to do anything. He was willing to give up anything for this woman that he loved. And of course, Laban pulled the trick on him, and he was willing to serve another seven years because he loved Rachel. And you remember the strife, and you remember the struggle between the families and, and how Rachel wasn't able to have a child for the longest time. And, and Leah, her big sister, the, the other wife, she was very fertile, and she was having all these children. You remember uh, all of that. Well, now Rachel, his beloved wife, has died. She's passed on. And we, we have to pause here when we read about this because she's been a major part of this story and it seems like she's been a pretty significant driver for, for his decisions, for the actions that he would be willing to take. We need to ask ourselves, you know, Rachel died doing a very normal thing. Not easy, no, but it's a, it's a natural, she was giving birth and she died. What, what will you die of? And when will it be? What normal thing might you be doing? What unexpected day might it be that you die as well? We need to ask ourselves those questions. I wonder, I wonder if, if they discussed it. I don't have any idea, but this is a chapter about death. We've already seen Deborah die. Now Rachel's died, and spoiler, Isaac's going to die later on in the chapter. This is a chapter about death about one generation coming to an end. And, 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 and Isaac probably knew the day's coming. I mean, he, he's thought he's been on his deathbed for decades already. <laughs> and he, he knew it was coming. And maybe Deborah knew it was coming. I mean, she's, she's pretty, pretty old too, but Rachel's giving birth. When will be your last day? What will be the thing you are doing? We need to 
learn the lessons of, of the death that's in this chapter. But, look at verse 22. There is one who didn't learn the lessons of this death. While Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. You see, the death that probably caused great sadness to Jacob, though we don't really read about it, but that the, the death that caused such change in the family provided opportunity for Reuben. Who's Reuben? Reuben is, first of all, he's the oldest son. We're going to have a list of them in just a verse or two. He's the oldest son, which means he's the likely heir. And not only is he the oldest son, but look who his mom is. Look at verse 23. The sons of Leah were Reuben, the firstborn, and some others. Remember Leah, the unloved wife. Here is this this time when Rachel, the beloved wife, has passed away. And now the unloved wife is left. I wonder how Jacob treated the unloved wife. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But we see that Reuben sees an opportunity. This is my chance. Now that, now that Rachel is out of the, out of the picture, uh, he decides that he makes a move on Bilhah. And who is Bilhah? His father's concubine. Verse 25, Rachel's servant. He's trying to take over. Reuben decides he's going to take over. Now, this is going to be repeated uh, later on. This is kind of a theme in, uh, in, in the Old Testament that when a son wanted to make a, a push or, uh, uh, and take over, usurp his dad's position like Absalom with David. Uh, Absalom goes into David's concubines for the same reason. He's trying to take over. Reuben, uh, rather than mourning the loss of Rachel, the mother of his brothers. Instead, he makes his move, and he goes into her and lies with her. And look at, look at what we see there. Israel heard of it. Israel heard of it. What did he do? Nothing. Nothing. He heard of it and did nothing. His, his passivity, which is uh, becoming more and more of a theme. He's becoming more like his dad all the time. But he, he, he heard of it and he did nothing. And in passing, there's a point of application here. That here we have a father, a father of 12 sons. What a responsibility to be a dad of 12 sons. It's a huge responsibility to be a dad anyway, but to be a father of 12 sons is a huge responsibility. And he doesn't seem to take the role very seriously. He's passive. He lets the things happen. He heard of it. He'll talk about it later. Chapters later, at the end of his life, he'll make some comments on it. Fathers, we need to take seriously our roles as father, as leader in our home. We need to be involved, directly involved in the discipleship, the training, the discipline of our children. That's a responsibility that the Lord has given us, and it seems like Jacob just punts on that. Uh, all the while, and you're going to see the consequences in the lives of his family. Dads, we need not to be passive. We need to be active. We need to be investing in our children, investing in the next generation. But it continues, now the sons of Jacob were 12, and here we have a listing of the sons, but what's different about this listing? The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, 
Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. Why are the sons listed that way? Now, probably you didn't even notice that they were listed in an unusual way, but they're listed by mother. They're listed by loyalty, not by age. Yes, age is mixed in there, but they're listed primarily by the mom's name. Remember, one of the moms has just died. The, the beloved mom, the one with whom there was such conflict between Rachel and Leah. And here, they're listed in this way. They're listed by team, by loyalty. What's, what's going to happen later? I, I said the story continues in chapter 30, 37. We pick up the Joseph narrative. If you've been reading ahead, if you are familiar with the Joseph narrative, you remember what that story was about. All the brothers hated Joseph. Particularly, the sons of Leah hated Joseph. Now, Benjamin's a little guy, and he's also a son of uh, Rachel, so he, he kind of escapes some of the hatred, but they just can't stand Joseph. And Joseph has these dreams, and Joseph thinks he's all special, right? And Joseph is the oldest son of Rachel, the beloved wife, the one that Jacob had been after the whole time, and they're listed by team. This family against that family. We're setting up conflict in the future generations. We're setting up the struggle that's going to turn into what we see there in 37 and following. And then we finish out the chapter, Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Isaac, who's been not a major character, he's almost a transitional one between Abraham and between Jacob, but now all these years, we see he lived 180 years, and now he has finally passed away, and after he has died, who's going to be the patriarch? It was Jacob. Jacob is now the patriarch. He's been a main character. He's been a main player all uh, these last number of chapters while his dad's been alive. His dad has been the patriarch, and he has been uh, accomplishing all these things. Now we have a transition between generations, and now Jacob, who's been doing the actions, now becomes the patriarch. He's the figurehead. And now the sons who have been uh, being birthed and all this are now going to move up, and they're going to be the main actors. You have this transition happening here. And Isaac dies, and Esau and Jacob are together to bury him, uh, which is a good thing, but we see the passing of Isaac himself. And so when we read uh, the rest of Genesis and elsewhere in the Bible about the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, we see that two of the three patriarchs are now dead, and we are to the last one. That's the chapter. What are some implications that we can draw from this? What are, what are some conclusions that we can come to? Well, the first implication here for us, just as far as understanding why this chapter is here, is that subsequently after this chapter, the story is going to be about, I mean, Jacob's going to be alive, but it's going to be about the sons. It's going to be about this next generation and the things that they're going to do, the act, actions that they're going to take. So just interpretively, that's why chapter 35 is here. But also, another implication, 
The passivity by a father wreaks havoc on his children and on his whole family. You see again and again that happen in Isaac's life, particularly and now even in Jacob's life, that he is passive. But there's another implication that you have to think about to see in this chapter right here, and that is this chapter anticipates a future king. It anticipates a future king, not just because it mentioned the word kings, but because of these reasons. He, he did mention kings in repeating that promise to Jacob. Yes, there's going to be a multitude, people, offspring, nations, yes. And there's going to be land and a place to dwell, but here there are going to be kings that come forth from you. That's, a, that's something new that ought to stand out to us. I'm sure it stood out to Jacob because he had heard that about grandpa's stories, but he had not heard that from God himself talking to him. So we begin to wonder, what's this royal line going to be like? Who are these kings going to be? If it's going to come from Jacob, he's got 12 sons. Which one's it going to be? You know, it's a little bit like when Samuel was uh, looking for the sons of Jesse to see which one he should anoint there, and they prayed before him one at a time. No, not that one. No, not that one. No, don't you have another one? Oh, yeah, he's, he's kind of the runt. He's off taking care of the sheep. Well, it's a similar situation here. Who's going to be the king? Well, look at our list there in verse 23. The sons of Leah, remember Leah was the first one to have children. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, maybe he'll be the king. Oh, wait a minute. What did Reuben do? Even in this chapter, he went into his father's wife. And we're going to read when we look at chapter 49 that because of this, actually, why don't you turn there uh, briefly. We're going to be flipping back to uh, this, this uh, chapter in 49 in a moment. So keep a finger in 35, keep a finger in Genesis 49 in the early part of that chapter. Remember, Jacob heard about it. What did he do? Well, he did nothing. But then at the end of his life, when he's blessing his sons, he's making these proclamations to him. Chapter 49 of Genesis and verse 3, he says, Reuben, that's the first one on the list, he's the oldest, you are my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Maybe he'll be the king. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Reuben, the firstborn, listed there in our list, he's passed over because he has disqualified himself. He won't be the king. Well, look at, look at our, our passage here. Look at verse 23. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and you can scratch him off. He's not going to be the king. What about Simeon? What about Simeon and Levi? Those are the next two. What do we know about them? Well, we read about them in the last chapter. They led the charge to slaughter all the men at Shechem. And he heard about that as well. And flip back to Genesis chapter 49. The very next verse, as he's going down the list of his sons, oldest to youngest, and he, he, he turns to Reuben and says, yeah, you're my firstborn, but you won't be treated as my firstborn because you defiled your father's bed. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their words. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen 
Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So go back to 35 and look at our list. It wasn't Reuben because of what he did. It wasn't Simeon and it wasn't Levi because of what they've done. Who's next? Judah. And we're not done with Judah. There's more to the story of Judah and to all of these sons. But who's going to be next in line? Who's going to be the king? Who's going to be the royal line? We'll look at Jacob's words regarding Judah. Verse 8 of chapter 49. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. The kingly line is going to be from Judah. The royal line is from Judah. The king that they anticipate is going to be one who comes from Judah. This is part of the expectation that our chapter is developing for us is who is going to be the king? There's going to be a nation. Who's going to rule them? There's going to be a land. Who's going to reign over the land? Is it going to be Reuben? No, it's not Reuben. What about Simeon? No, he blew it too. What about Levi? No, he's not the right man. But Judah himself is going to be the one to carry on this line. This chapter is about the transition from one generation to the next of God's people and about the king who's going to come and redeem and reign over his people. And of course, you and I know because we have continued to read in our Bibles that hundreds of years later in Judah's line, there's going to be the great king, King David, who is of the tribe of Judah. And God will make a promise to him in 2 Samuel 7 and say, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, says God to David, who is of the tribe of Judah. And a thousand years after that word, a thousand years after that promise of the kingly line, that promise given to a king about a king who's going to front, come from him, we read of a baby who's born, who's called the son of David, who's called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There is no greater king than this king of kings. But he's born lowly. He's born of a woman. He's born under the law. His life before God and man is perfect and it's righteous. And yet he puts himself uh, in the place where he gets put to death. He goes to the cross on purpose, the very the place of a lawbreaker to suffer the consequences in his own body. But God raises him from the dead and God receives him back into glory. There's a king that's going to come and the king is promised even here in chapter 35 and the, the picture is given of who he's going to be. He's going to be the one Jesus who lives righteously, who dies in the place of the unrighteous, but is raised from the dead. And when the time comes for you, this chapter is filled with death. And our life, isn't it? Our experience is filled with death. How many people have we lost? How many people have you lost? When the time comes, where like Deborah and Rachel and Isaac, you breathe your last and stand before God to give an account, you'll do one of two things. 
you will either present your own record, showing the Lord what you've done. And if you do that, you will find God's eye as, as a judge is very sharp and His understanding is very keen and He will look at your actions and He will see the intentions behind those actions. He will see the bitterness of the words that you spoke. He will see the things that are deep down in your heart that perhaps you've not even recognized of yourself. And He will look and He will see what is really there and, and, and He will find you guilty of breaking His law. And finding you guilty for breaking His law if you insist on presenting your own record, the punishment will be an eternity separated from Him in hell. And, and when will you die? You don't know. What will you be doing? You don't know. But there will come a time when you will face Him and you will either present your own record or, or you will present the record of Christ. You will present what Christ has done in His obedience where He was always obedient to the Father, where He kept God's law, where, where He always loved God and His neighbor fully whose intentions were always pure, whose heart was never bitter. And not only will you present that record of what Christ has done for God to examine, you will also present in place of your own guilt His death to pay the penalty for your guilt so that your sin is wiped away and righteousness is credited to your account. And so when God, who has that keen eye, examines the record of Christ and he looks at it and he looks at the intentions and he looks at the actions and he looks at, at the heart, he finds perfect obedience. He finds cause for rejoicing and celebration and reward for the person who presents that record. But the choice has to be made here. It can't be made there. It's a choice we must make in this life it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. After death, it's too late to switch the records. You don't have time. Today is the day of salvation. And so turn from your sin. Turn from your own record, reliance upon your own actions, and turn to Christ instead. And there you will see His record is perfect. His payment is complete. And by faith in Him, those become yours. And so as we, as we close by application, turn to this king as your only hope in life and death. Turn to him. Trust in him. Death is all over this chapter, reminding us that we don't know when ours will be. And so recognize the brevity of your own life and put your faith in Christ now. Secondly, point your children to the king for their hope and their forgiveness. Don't be passive like Jacob was passive. With few exceptions, when you look at his children, you will see that they were uh, in different ways, but wild like him. He didn't teach them the things that he had learned, at least not for the most part. They needed to be raised in the faith. They should have been trained and taught to know and trust the Lord from their earliest days, but instead, here they are usurping their father's authority and showing their own rebellion. 
Parents, train your children, point your children to Christ and His finished work so that they can be saved and so that they will know how to walk with God in grace. They shouldn't be left to themselves to learn that. You and I get to teach them that. And so turn to the King yourself, turn to Christ yourself and point your children to Him. And thirdly, tell others about the King. Where is found forgiveness? Where is found righteousness? Where is found life in Him? So what needs to happen for our generation and those that will come after us to be prepared to live before God? What what needs to happen? Well, they need to learn about the King who saves. They need to be taught of Him. They need to be confronted with Him. They need to be confronted with their own sin, their need for purification, their need to be forgiven. They need to recognize their own personal need for the king and they need to come to him and trust him for what he has accomplished for them every generation must come to know christ or die without him and present their own record so may we know christ and may we make christ known and use our voices with our children and in our community and in our age to make christ known as well let's pray Father, this is a difficult chapter. There are great sins in it. Reuben is incomprehensible in his attempt to usurp his father's authority. Jacob's passivity in the whole process is, is awful and bears terrible consequences. The enmity that's going to exist between the brothers coming into the future is is going to be deadly. And yet, and yet, when we think of Joseph, whose brothers will hate him, who will sell him into slavery after they've finally agreed not to kill him, when they agree only to sell him into slavery to a foreign nation, to get rid of him so that they won't have to listen to him anymore, and so... Their, their, their father's affections for him will be able to spread to them, perhaps. Yet even in their evil intentions, you were intending good. And you made it even through those sins, even as a result of Jacob's passivity, even as a result of the brother's hatred and all that goes on. You brought it about so that your people would be spared, your people would have food, your people would live, and most importantly, Judah. The one who would bring about David, who would bring about Jesus, our Savior. And Father, we recognize that we have our own sin, that we have uh, sinned maybe in the ways that, that uh, Jacob has, in our passivity or, or in, in countless other ways that we have, have sinned against you and not been helpful to our generation or the next. And yet, we take great comfort that you, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, are at work graciously even in our generation, in future generations, bringing about salvation in Christ even for them. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to be faithful, to pass on this saving gospel in this generation and the next. We pray that you would bring great fruit from that. 
but where we have been unfaithful and where we will continue to be, we pray for mercy and grace. And we rejoice that you are greater even than our unfaithfulness. So, Father, we trust you. We love you and we thank you that you are in charge and we are not. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be a family up front to uh, pray with you. I would encourage you to come uh, spend some time praying with them. Uh, Also, we are having uh, evening service tonight at 6 o'clock. And um, there's something else. Oh, next Sunday night is going to be the prayer, praise, and pie social. So uh, join us in the fellowship hall, particularly next Sunday night, uh, 6 o'clock. It's going to be a wonderful time of praising God for what He has done. So God bless you all, and you are dismissed.